Welcome back to the seventh season of my podcast. I'm making a couple of changes for 2024, namely moving episodes to fortnightly to create more realistic workload and publishing on Thursdays. You probably know by now that I work with companies to help them understand what's getting in the way of people having the best experience and performing well. Whether that's about work culture, leadership and management, mental wellbeing or engagement, I strip back the noise to uncover what's really going on. And then together we create a meaningful, innovative and sustainable approach to address those challenges. And that's what I'll be discussing with my guests. It's all about putting the human factor back into business. Because when we get people right, we get business right. I want to give a quick shout out about Leadership and Manager Labs, because I'm facilitating those with the fabulous Gemma Ellison of Heart Leadership. If you're interested in a space and community dedicated to development via a process of experimentation that gives us permission to analyse, test, review and learn, all within a human-centric framework, get in touch. Details are in the show notes. I'm your host, Lisa, psychologist and psychotherapist and founder of It's Time for Change. Thank you for joining me on Beyond the Water Cooler. So welcome to this podcast, this episode of the podcast, which is all about um, today, part of the Resilience Collective, which is a series of resources that uh, we've been producing around specific aspects of mental health. And so far, we've covered stress, depression, anxiety, and addiction. And today, discussing self-harm disorders and phobias um, with a specific focus on self-harm, because I am really delighted to be sitting here with Yaj Bulgeen, who is a trainer and clinician at Harmless. So thank you for coming, Yaj. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. It's great to be here. I'm really excited about this because we, we touched base briefly at the start of the week and we had to stop ourselves launching into depth in, in the conversation because there was just so much to say and and I love your approach to talking about what can feel like quite a tricky subject because you are so grounded you're so you've got a wicked sense of humor you just um you're very easy to listen to so in terms of this conversation today I'm really excited about people being able to listen and go actually that's not such a scary topic after all <laughs> Oh, that's really lovely. No, I really appreciate you saying that. And it's it's, re- it's really easy to speak to you as well. Um, I, I've been really looking forward to talking about this topic. Um, in my social life, I talk about it quite often. <laughs> and that's because I never want anyone to feel afraid of speaking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a little bit about me. Yeah. Do tell um, us a little bit about you and a little bit about Harmless. Yeah. So, uh, so as Lisa said, my name is Yaj. Um, And I've been working for an organization called Harmless for about two and a half years now, which is really exciting. Um, I've been working mostly as a trainer for the last two and a half years. But as of three months ago, I've also started work on their clinical pathway for self-harm, which I'm really excited about. It's something I've been wanting to do for a really long time. And I've finally got the opportunity to do it. Um, I'm really passionate about helping people. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to be a trainer, because I want to help support people who might be supporting others through distress. But what I noticed is that with training, I don't have that other viewpoint. And so as part of being a clinician, I wanted to get the view of frontline workers, teachers, 
anyone who works in business or anyone in like a front-facing position, anyone who's working with people really, I wanted to get that view to know what it was like because each individual conversation that you have is going to be different. It's going to be personalized. Um, and it's one of the things that I love about our organization. So Harmless is a user-led self-harm prevention service. Um, we're actually a, a national leader in our field. And as part of that, we also look a lot at suicide prevention and suicide bereavement too. Now, as part of this work, we don't just want to look at someone and think, okay, we've got a blanket solution that's going to fit everyone. We take a very individual approach. And I think that's really important to discuss because often, especially in a business place, we often use very blanket solutions for everything, but there's never a one size fits all. And particularly with something as sensitive and emotive as self-harm, because it's it's often derived from things like trauma. Mm. Not always, but often. Mm. I, I, I really like that approach. And I think, um, I mean, that's anyone who knows me will know that. I'm, I'm always banging on about you can't have blanket approaches to anything um and you know you take the term depression you know what depression actually looks like or means and how that's experienced for anyone who's experiencing depression will be unique for each individual and so it's very easy to make assumptions and that's what we're going to sort of unpick a little bit today and actually the resource that accompanies this episode, um, which is around um, self-harm disorders and phobias, mm. is very much geared to an individual approach. It's about not having to have all the answers and be an expert and know how to cure something. It's about actually using the expertise that the individual experiencing a particular need has, that they are the expert in themselves and they know what helps and what doesn't help and so yeah. it's really good to hear you say that absolutely and it's interesting so I'm all about language um, language is really powerful and especially when we think about what's the cure but that means we're treating it like if we're thinking that there's a cure for something it means that we think of it as a disease mm. or a virus and self-harm it's not a disease it's not mm. a virus it's not something that you can catch Mm. you know and so it's remembering that it's something it's a behavior that's rooted in distress okay mm. and so we want to think about the term recovery it's possible to recover mm. from self-harm and again it's individualizing the approach it is possible to recover but what that recovery might, might mean for someone can be very different um, and what I failed to mention <laughs> in my introduction as well about myself is that as well as my professional experience within this area is I also have a lot of my own lived experience as well. And recovery has been something that's been really important throughout that journey, mm. remembering that it doesn't always just mean stopping self-harm. Sometimes it simply means a reduction in self-harm or maybe not thinking about it quite as much as you might have before. Mm. And that's okay. Mm. I, th I think let what would be really helpful mm. is to actually explore what we mean by self-harm because I know when I speak to people and use that term they often associate that just with someone who's for example cutting themselves mm. and they don't realize the breadth that that term covers can you tell us a little bit more about how you understand um 
you know what you understand self-harm to be yeah absolutely so self-harm um according to the nice guidelines so the national institute for health and care excellence it is the um intentional injury irrespective of the apparent purpose of the act okay so it's an injury that we that we self-inflict now that doesn't mean just cutting Mm. okay there are many different methods of self-harm that people can use and um the problem is if we only ever think that self-harm is just cutting it means we're ignoring all of the other signs of someone's distress and I think we touched on this on on Monday when we had our chat because Mm. we also want to consider methods such as self-hitting or hitting something hard we want to think about things like scratching burning you know and even down to things like um you know it's a bit more of a gray area but we all harm ourselves in many different ways whether it's through self-talk and the way we talk to ourselves we might really put ourselves down like oh i've done this really stupid thing i must be i must be stupid i must be crazy that's harmful okay but we only ever look at the very physical side and i think that's part of the problem when we think about self-harm we only ever pay attention to the physical injury when in reality that injury the harm that we see that's just the symptom that's the symptom of self-harm what we're missing is everything underneath the surface which is the underlying distress it's the reason it's the function why someone has to self-harm in the first place yeah I think it's it's so good to hear you explain it like that and that's a really clear um kind of guide in terms of how we need to open our mind to what we think of um in terms of self-harming behavior it's always that interesting um sort of in terms of use of language when you said about the gray area when you talk about negative self-talk which I think is a really good point to highlight because so many people do that on a regular basis and they don't think about that as being damaging to themselves but also things like exercise I know people who who exercise excessively but it's it's almost seen as a that's a positive um behavior that's really healthy but actually at what point does that tip over um the edge into being something that's more harmful drinking eating you know there are so many things that we can engage with that are healthy to a point but then it tips the balance tips and it becomes more harmful and so I don't know if that's something you you help people try to unpick and and actually make sense themselves but when they perhaps are veering towards engaging with the behavior as a way of coping that is now starting to become harmful yeah absolutely and I think that's really important um I think it's really insightful as well I I love that you said that because uh a few years ago well when I was about 28 years old I remember I was going through a really stressful period in my life and I've never been particularly big but I was I, I, I was healthy and then when I hit this really stressful point I ended up losing loads of weight mm. um and it was just down to stress I wasn't eating I wasn't sleeping very well but the amount of comments that I got from people saying, oh, you look really good. Mm. And I thought to myself, I'm I'm actually really not very well. I'm really not very well. Yeah. And 
it felt like if I said that, if I said that out loud, then I'd be met with, oh, well, you should feel good. That it, it, mm. it was almost like, well, at least you losing weight is the silver lining. Mm. And yep. it was really damaging. It made me not want to speak to people because of that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that and that's almost comes on to that language bit doesn't it what you're saying then just reminds me of I mean it's not self-harm but I remember when my son was struggling to get sleep at night you know night after night he'd be struggling to sleep and he just wanted to be read books all the time and everyone everyone said well that's fine he's reading books like what's the concern is like well, he's not getting the sleep he needs but people will often look at well that's a healthy it's a healthy behavior and actually they're not looking at the bigger picture yeah but the language Tell me a little bit more about the the importance of language around self harm because I think again, people have a, there's a fear factor around. Yeah. What if I ask someone the question? It's a little bit like suicide. What if I ask someone if they yeah. have had suicidal thoughts? Well, am I planting the seed in the head? What if I ask about self harm? Is it okay or not okay? Or what if someone mentions self harm to me? What should I say? There's that whole language yeah. bit, isn't there? Yeah, and because of that language, there's so much pressure. It adds so much pressure. Mm. And so, um, first of all, I want to tackle the suicide question because I think that's the biggest one that people are afraid of. Um, and again, I think it's so, it's really important to normalize the word suicide. It's okay to say the word suicide. Mm. The reality is, is that most people think if I ask this question, I'm going to give someone the idea to do it or I'm going to plant the seed in their head okay that's all about us that's not about the person in front of us so at that point we're more worried about what we're saying and the effect it will have than the person in front of us and what they actually might need or want now there's actually no evidence to say that by talking about suicide that you're going to give someone the idea to do it if someone is already exhibiting signs of distress like self-harm for example the reality is that they're already thinking about suicide. Mm. I mean, according to NHS data, at least one in five people in the UK are having thoughts of suicide at any given time. And I know that sounds like a really scary statistic, but actually I want to look at it in a positive light. It actually shows how normal it is. So why are we afraid of having this conversation? And the reality again is that that one in five is likely to be an underrepresentation the likelihood is that stat is actually much, much higher. And so it means that we should be talking about it more. We always have these questions in our head of, what if I say the wrong thing? But let me ask you, what if you say the right thing? Okay, isn't it worth that chance? You know, and we want to ask about suicide because what will happen? if we don't ask that question and we suspect someone, is that that person's not safe. Hmm. We're making an assumption that that person is safe. Now, asking about suicide, asking about self-harm, it doesn't have to be a scary question, but actually it's a really caring question to ask. Hmm. It's a very compassionate question because you actually care about whether that person lives or dies or not. And that's important. And we wanna create that safe space without judgment, without the stigma attached to it. 
Because when we do that, we can break down barriers to people being able to seek help, whether they're self-harming or whether they're feeling suicidal. Because isn't that the point? We want to keep people safe. Yeah, I think um, the intention to do the right thing is so important. So even if we um, don't feel we've got the language quite right and some people get tied up in knots about... Um, you know we shouldn't say commit suicide and then some someone says it and then it's like oh my gosh I said that it's terrible it's like if we're having the conversation the intentions to help someone that's that's the important thing and I'll often one day we can wear a psychotherapy hat and um often in those conversations I'll just ask have you had any thoughts of hurting yourself over the last week and then people depending on what they say that conversation can go in a number of different directions but actually the sense of relief when people say when they, when they have this space, someone's asked me that question. It's like, actually, I've thought about this, but I know I'm not going to do it. Or I've thought about this and this is my way of coping, which, again, gives us insight that they need a different way of um, coping, a different coping strategy. But having just that space to be able to be honest and open. And unless we put that invitation out there, people often will not just volunteer that information because they won't know how it's going to land. Yeah, absolutely. Um absolutely 100% I really resonate with that because um I, I found myself in that position so many times throughout my life mm. you know um even having opened up about it myself to a number of different friends they never knew how to respond mm. and because of that fear it stopped them from wanting to interact with me and that's what hurt more I would have rather that they fumbled through the words and checked in to show the care mm. than to ignore it mm. because it only amplified the loneliness. I think that's, a, that's such a good point. I've actually um, this morning messaged someone I know who's going through a bit of a hard time at the moment and said, good luck today. Hope you're okay. Um, let me know how you get on. And then ended that message. And then straight away thought, oh, actually, she might not want to let me know how she got on. So I messaged her back saying, if you don't want to speak to me, that's absolutely fine as well. So you've got to do what's right for you. But it's very yeah. easy for us to think we impose our expectations on what we're expecting. And actually, if we can give someone space just to speak up when they want to speak up or actually just not say anything, because I'm not in the mood for, for saying anything right now. But yeah. it's, it's being very aware of the permission um, that we're giving other people. Yeah. And I think it's also remembering that not everyone will have the words to express how they're feeling. And sometimes, you know, let, let's say you you have someone who said to you, I'm look, I'm I'm self-harming, I'm really struggling. Best policy is honesty. Mm. You might hear that, and you know what? There is nothing wrong with saying to that person, I don't even know what to say right now, but I'm just so glad you told me. Do you want to talk about it a bit more? Do you want to sit down? Do you want to have a cuddle? <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to be scary. We make it scary for ourselves. Mm. Naturally so, because we, again, we live in this culture, particularly in the UK, we have this culture of being really polite. <laughs> and it's not polite to be invasive. But again, asking how someone is and being honest with them when you don't have the words or... Mm when you don't know what to do express that because otherwise you just end up in your head yeah I, I agree and actually just asking the question if someone <clears throat> says something to me and I'm just thinking you know 
a lot of managers know that they're in a position where they are supposed to be having very good quality conversations with people, but the fear of what might come up will often stop them. And actually, if someone says, I'm struggling, then to ask that question, well, how, you know, how's that showing up for you? Or because it's again, um, is it that I'm just locking myself away? Am I harming? Am I throwing myself into work to distract myself from something else? Like, what is it that's happening? But I think if we can um, kind of create uh, the space and the permission to to say what it what is happening for me right now, and and for managers to know that it's okay to say ask the question how can I help, yeah, and not to have to feel that they've got the answers to go in and respond in a way that's going to add lots of wisdom or it's going to help move this person forward and help trying to solve their problems. It's actually just saying I'm, as you said, I'm really glad you told me. How can I help? What can I what can I do? And Often, again, the person might just say, I just want to tell you, I don't need you to do anything. Or actually, I could benefit from X, Y, or Z. The, the person listening hasn't got to solve the, yeah. the, the challenges coming up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's kind of the difference between sympathy and empathy when we're supporting someone. Sympathy is that ability to say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that's happened to you, you know, but look on the bright side. But empathy is recognizing, you know, it's recognizing the feeling. It's recognizing that everyone goes through distress. I can see you in distress. Mm. I'm going to get in that well with you. I'm not going to stand at the top and shout down. I'm going to get in there with you. And even if we just sit, that's fine. Maybe yeah. you just want some company. So what about the, in terms of some people, quite a lot of people will not open up. They will not share the fact that they're self-harming and we know that actually a lot of that's about the sense of stigma shame feeling embarrassed and so on what what should we be thinking about in terms of helping organizations tackle that so that is no longer a barrier so again i want to think about language Okay, language and the language that we use in an environment, in our work environment is really important. Depending on the kind of role that you're working in, if, if you're using words like, oh, this is crazy, this is, um, you know, oh, that's mental, you know. If you're speaking about things openly, but in a negative light, then we're only perpetuating the stigma, mm. okay. Um, I previously worked in an office, so prior to working in this area, I used to work in customer service and recruitment and I loved my roles, but I had to leave because I hated the attitudes and the behaviors in those workspaces because unfortunately I come from a childhood of trauma and working with people who don't recognize that or just haven't been through any kind of experience like that, they're not always very sensitive to those who have. Mm. And I remember, um, I really struggled with self-harm during those years and I dreaded going into the office because it, it felt almost like there was a bit of bullying. I was quiet. I was shy. You know, I was often called really weird. You know, there's almost these little microaggressions that can happen. But one thing in particular that really upset me and just sort of it didn't make me leave but it really made me want to get out of the environment was 
of, uh, quite a few years ago, there was um, a death by suicide that occurred in Nottingham. And it was on the radio. It was very public. And I remember my colleague saying straight away, what a selfish thing to do. I hope that person died painfully. And I could have, I could have cried. I could have cried because all I could think about was the person who died mm. and how lonely, distressed they must have been in to be mm. in that place. And then to have someone on the outside who didn't know know them or anything like that was really hurtful. Mm. And I experienced my first suicide at the age of about 12 years old. Yeah, mm. 12 years old, that's when I knew someone who died by suicide. And it was in a public way. Mm. And it was extremely distressing. It was awful. Mm. I understand attitudes towards self-harm and suicide. I do. Because I have seen both sides of it. But ultimately, again, if you if you work in that office then, moving forward, if I was ever in crisis or if I was really struggling, I knew that wasn't a safe place for me. So I think building up this culture of, Again, being mindful of what you're saying in your environment is really important. I think it's a really interesting point, actually, about because we know that employees are walking if they don't feel that they experience a kind of workplace culture where they it meets their needs. And we talk a lot about sort of well-being and flexible working and those sorts of things. But actually, if you're not feeling safe in terms of the, the use of language and behaviours, attitudes around mental health and certain whether it's certain things like suicide or it's just general what they call banter around the language that's being thrown around, I'm so OCD and all those kind of comments. Um, if people don't feel safe, then they will walk as well. And I don't think we um, probably think about that category of people who aren't feeling safe in that environment. Yeah. Um, do you have um, statistics around actually the, the how many people are like to be self-harming? I'm just thinking about in terms of this in terms of making this feel relevant for yeah. workplaces, which obviously you and I know, but there'll be some people thinking that self-harm stuff's for other people. It's not yeah. for my workforce. Do you have any stats that can help us um, paint that picture? Now, the reality is in terms of statistics, we actually don't have that many. Mm. And that's because self-harm hasn't been as extensively researched as suicide. Mm. That is an ongoing thing. But what we do know is that according to the World Health Organization in 2014, there were at least 16 million cases of people self-harming worldwide. 16 million. Now, again, the reality is that was an underestimate at the time, and it's likely to be even higher now in 2024 when we consider what's happened. Even in the UK alone, we've got the cost of living crisis People are worried about their finances. People are having to use food banks when they've never had to before. People not being able to keep their gas and electricity on and not knowing how to cope with that. Mm. And again, that's the biggest thing. When we're talking about self-harm, ultimately, one of the reasons that people self-harm, whether knowingly or unknowingly, is that they're trying to cope with the underlying distress. In the absence of knowing of another way of coping, if you think about when we were at school, we were never taught how to cope with things, how to cope with big stressful events. We were taught math, English, crafts. <laughs> but what about this vital life skill? How do you cope in the face of adversity? 
Mm. So what are there general risk factors then you think that would be worth highlighting? Because, I mean, what you've just said as a kind of societal risk factor, you know, the cost of living crisis means that people are more vulnerable. So as a manager, as, as someone in a workplace, not even a manager, just an employee looking out for other people, what would be if someone if someone doesn't come up to you themselves and, and um reveal that they are struggling and that they might be self-harming what signs should I be looking for in yeah. others so I'd be looking for things like um changes in behavior mm. um often we think of those as really negative but I think it's also important to highlight the opposite mm. um as well a bit so, like the example any... you said about losing weight and everyone saying that's amazing. Yeah. It's like, actually, there's a change. You've lost weight. What's going on? Yeah. Yeah, exactly like that. Mm. You know, It's things like even work performance. If you've had someone who's been doing quite, let's say, not poorly, but they've been doing average, mm. and then suddenly it goes up. Okay. I want to monitor that. Why? Why has it suddenly gone up? What's happened? Mm. You know, because I'm... I would be pleased about it, but also I want to know, has something changed? Okay, because again, there's there's signs of distress in there. Are they trying to reach that point of perfectionism? Is there a control element? And that's really some... important then for people to, again, look at their employees mm. or their colleagues as people. Because I think if a lot of people potentially could look at a spike in performance going brilliant and gloss over everything else it's like we are hitting our targets this person's you know excelling and their performance is like really really happy with that and not stop to ask a question about why that might be yeah and it's also important because often when we think about suicide and self-harm we often think about the people who aren't doing very well in that work environment mm. but again self-harm affects people from different backgrounds of all ages of all ethnicities everything mm. you know and I know a lot of people who actually do really well in workplaces are some of the people who self-harm mm. yeah so it's it's trying to look out for again it's not I don't want it to sound like pressure but it's trying to look out for again each individual like do you recognize your staff do you recognize their stress signatures? Do you recognize your own stress signature? Mm. You know, because we know, um, well, we know when we are at that point of stress, but we do we know the, are we recognizing the early warning signs before that stress starts to really hit? You know, for me, one of my stress signatures is I'm normally quite tidy. My stress signature is that when I start leaving empty cups or half empty cups of tea everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> which is what we were talking about before we hit record yeah. Yeah. so when I start leaving half empty cups of tea everywhere or when I keep sighing that's when I know right I'm reaching my my point I need to start putting some stuff in for myself can we recognize that in our employees so if you've got an employee who's no, who's normally really on time or gets here a little bit earlier and now they're starting to creep in a little bit later or they're a bit more tired than usual you know, they might be small signs, but they might also be quite impactful signs as well. Mm. Even just reminding someone that you care about them in that environment. You know, just saying, mm. oh, I noticed you're a little bit late today. You know, it's nothing to worry about, but just want to make sure you're okay. Mm. You know, simple things yeah. like that. It's human connection. Yes. And we had, and the, I guess the thing that struck me then or came to mind then was 
a conversation I had with a company last week who were talking about the fact that they are shifting their practice from billable hours to utilizations I think the term they use in other words um how many hours are they using to do the paid work and let's look at that and then it creates space because it's acknowledged that some hours are not going to be used for that can be billed in the same way because those hours are having the conversations that need to happen between people and if we don't consciously create that space to check in to notice like actually just even noticing like before you have the conversation with someone that something's not quite right it's not their normal we've got to have the space to notice that in the first place and that's not going to happen if we are being driven by performance sort of targets and expectations around how much we're billing and and everything else so it's so to to consciously take that step and say we are prioritizing people and as colleagues or managers or whoever we are giving the space and the permission to do that by and then being very clear about what the process is that supports that to happen I think that's a big step forward absolutely and I think it's also important again not just for the employees but for the managers too because Mm. you know one thing that I notice in my current workplace as well is our managers do so much and I'm just like there's always parts of me that are like are you okay yeah. And I don't feel like it's my place, but I'm still like, are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I want to speak to you. It's okay. Yeah. You know, I think it's yeah. everyone's place. I think, yeah. and, it, and it is, again, it's yeah. getting over that, um, those kind of traditional beliefs around it's the, it's the higher, higher up people who look after yeah. us kind of on the ground level. It's like actually everyone has a duty of care to look after everyone else. So yeah. um, I think that's, that's quite important important absolutely Um, it reminds me of what we spoke about on uh on monday actually which was um you know when we think about children mm. there's that saying it takes uh, a village to raise a child why does that then go away when we're adults yes (laughs) you know it's still you know we are as human beings we're really social creatures you know we thrive on having these relationships around us these nurturing relationships around us again how can we incorporate that into our working lives Mm. we spend so much time in work why would we want to miss out on that Mm. why should we miss out on that you know so what can organizations do in terms of practical things for people who are self-harming or um you know they might suspect they might be worried about their self-harming or perhaps someone's disclosed that what what should organizations do or not do so I would say in terms of some things to do um it's about creating that safe space to have that conversation so thinking right are we are we in a private space um does would that like what would work for that employee if someone's disclosed someone to you, ask them what environment they'd feel comfortable talking about this in. Because some people feel great talking in a room opposite each other, but some people might want to go, like, change the change the environment. So go for a walk, maybe. Mm. Okay, so first create the space, okay, and create the time, okay. This isn't something that you want to say, I've got no time for this right now, so we'll talk about it on Friday. Mm. 
Okay, no, like, if someone said that to you, that means they've trusted you enough to be able to open up, and we want to acknowledge that. So if someone disclosed to me, I'd say thank you for telling me because that can't have been very easy. Okay, can you tell me a bit more about what's been going on for you? Okay. And we want to start listening to the reasons that's driven this person to this place. Now, again, it's not about the injury. Okay. It's about the underlying distress that is driving this behavior. Okay. So we want to try and find time to explore that. And again, you're not here as an employer to fix that. But knowing where to signpost someone to can be hugely beneficial. I'm not saying that we have to sit down and go through everything and have you know have your own sessions every week I mean it might help to have check-ins regularly but knowing where to signpost someone you know and if it's happening regularly maybe consider training within your organization for your managers okay because the last thing that we want to do we don't want to risk losing people and while self-harm and suicide are not the same thing there is a relationship between the two and self-harm can be a risk factor for subsequent suicide. That does not mean that everyone who self-harms will be suicidal and not everyone who is suicidal will self-harm, okay? But it does mean that if we know someone is self-harming, we can be proactive about their care and not wait until they get to a point of crisis where we risk losing them. Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah. as an organization, it's thinking about what do we have in place? What are your policies? Do you have um, a specific person within your organization, HR, for example, who's able to have these conversations and provide that one-to-one -one support? Mm. Um, I want to remind you that self-harm and suicide, they are not mental illnesses. They are behaviors. And that's important for someone's sense of recovery because it's possible to change a behavior mm. okay it's not just about signposting someone to your local gp or you know a, a mental health service but have a think is there any like google it in your own local area are there any specialist self-harm services in the area okay or is it something else are they struggling with um financial crises in their life can we get them some help and support for that mm. You know, and this is where third sector organizations come in, you know, and it's where sort of harmless sits best. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I think um, I, I mean, it's a really good point to make that um, about the self-harm is not a mental health disorder. Mm -hmm. um, it is a behavior. And I think if people can keep that in mind, it helps them perhaps think about what's going on underneath and focus on the what's going on underneath and how, what can I do to help you influence that? Because we know if we actually deal with some of the um, what's going on underneath in terms of the stresses, then actually it's going to change the the behavior that's um, resulting as, as a consequence. So, yeah, I like that emphasis on actually talking about what, what I can influence. I can't tell you and I'm not going to tell you to stop self-harming because that's not my job to do that. Actually, I might, if I know, for example, you're cutting, one of the things I do a lot when in my role is if someone tells me that they're cutting or they're scratching, we talk about how, are you, are you safe doing that? Are you using yeah. clean 
blades are you cleaning up afterwards are you you know making sure that you're safe and we have a very open conversation about that and it's like yes I am well that's that's good so now let's we're just going to park that now because I know you're safe on that level now let's look at what we can do to try and help you feeling the need to do that and that's the space that people in a workplace can influence because if there's something that's causing them to feel overwhelmed to feel stressed um that's building up to that point of of harming then maybe as a um as an employer or as a colleague we can help you address some of that or if it's nothing to do with the workplace then certainly someone outside the organization um a professional should be able to help yeah absolutely um i really love that as well it's such a a nice way of supporting someone who's self-harming mm. um I mean, if it's okay, I'd like to share a little bit. I know we've uh, not got loads of notes of time, but I would mm. like to share some of my own experience with that, particularly in regards to someone asking you to stop. Mm. Um, so for, for those listening, just a emotional safety reminder, because um, I do want to be open, but talk about it in a safe way. Um, but my experience with self-harm, it did start from a really young age. Um, so I was eight years old the first time that I self-harmed. And I remember it was something that was incredibly private. It was something that I didn't want to share with anybody because I knew in my bones that it was something that I didn't want anybody to know about. Mm. And this would have been back in the late 90s as well. There was no Facebook. There was no social media. None of my friends were doing it that I knew of, you know. So there was no copying anyone. It happened in a moment. And it happened because I couldn't calm down. I couldn't get relief. I remember on this day in particular, I was crying and crying and I just couldn't overcome all of the stresses from that day. And I lived in a domestic abusive household and I really, really struggled. I didn't really have anyone I could speak to. I felt lonely. That self-harm, it happened instinctively. Mm. And I did, I felt better. Once I'd done it, I felt better. But shortly after, I realised what I'd done, that I'd done it in a really obvious place and I knew that I had to cover it up. I I didn't want to face the judgement from adults because I also didn't have the words to explain. I didn't know why I'd done it. I had no insight into that experience. It's only through many years of therapy that I understand this now. And then I kept it secret for a really long time. And it wasn't until I was 12 years old that I got found out. And the person who found out was one of my parents. And when they found out, they called me lots of names. They reacted in fear, which came out as anger. Mm. They said that I was crazy. They said that I was stupid. And they said that I belonged in a nut house. And then after they said all that, they said, you have to stop. And it felt like more of a threat then. A request mm. but I loved my parents and I wanted their approval I wanted to show them that I could I could do good and so I tried really hard to stop but without another coping strategy in place that worked for me mm. I felt lost I felt really trapped and that's when those thoughts of being able to manage through my self-harm transitioned into feeling like I had no other options left. And it led me into my first suicidal crisis at the age of 13 years old. Mm. 
and at 13 I'd made my first plan to end my life. I'm still here now, thankfully. But it wasn't until I was about, well, I went through two more suicidal crises in that time and it wasn't until I was about 22, 23 that I finally thought uh, sought a therapist. Mm. And I tried speaking to doctors and nurses, I tried speaking to mental health professionals and because I'd gotten so good at masking and pretending like I was okay, you know, to them, my self-harm wasn't severe enough or frequent enough to warrant extra support. I'd gained so much mistrust, I didn't want to speak to anybody. And then I finally sought support. And then I managed to stop self-harming for a good few years. But at 28 years old, I went back to it and I was really upset with myself. I thought I'd thrown away all that progress. I was so ashamed I didn't even talk to my therapist about it. Mm. But after I did, after I opened up to her about it, she said the nicest thing to me, which was that the journey of recovery, sometimes it's going to involve a few steps forwards and a few steps backwards. And she told me that just because you self-harmed for the first time in a long time, it doesn't mean that you haven't recovered. It means that you're going through some really big challenges right now mm -hmm. and we need to bolster up your support. Mm. And it made me realize that, again, that journey of recovery, it is certainly a journey. It's not a destination and it's definitely not linear. And I needed to hear that. I needed to hear that it was okay. Mm. And in reality, my version of recovery now as an adult you know that that happened when I was 28 I'm 33 now and now I'm in this position where I haven't self-harmed since and I haven't acted on any any thoughts of suicide it doesn't mean that I don't have urges mm. but the difference now is that I know how to recognize my early signs and I have trusted people very specific people in my life that I can talk to but honestly, if someone asked me that question, if they said, are you self-harming or have you had a history of self-harm? I'd be like, yep. Mm. You know, and thank you for asking. If it's out of support, thanks for asking because that's really brave too. But I think it really highlights, doesn't it, that, you know, your experience is a couple of things, the kind of the masking bits. And it's, mm. we have to be very mindful of um, people appear okay you have no idea what's going on beneath the surface. And I think we can get lulled into um, just focus on the people who really obviously are not okay in that moment and kind of gloss over the others. And it's about making sure that we don't just take face value, um, you know, take people out of face value because often there's, there's so much more going on, but also about your point about, you know, you now know what your stresses are, you know, who the people are to go and reach out to, you know, if you're feeling that kind of emotional arousal begin to creep up, you can recognize, but you know what to do about it. And wouldn't it be amazing? It, actually, if everyone, it goes back to what you said earlier about not getting taught it in schools. Wouldn't it be amazing if everyone was given that, that's kind of just basic life skills, life knowledge that we should all have as much as knowing how to read and write. It's that sense of self-awareness that would look after ourselves and each other so much more and reduce so many of the problems and destigmatize. Um, you know, when you said about uh having a break and then going back to to some self-harming um behavior. Actually, again, that's really, really 
common it's yeah. you know whatever that is it might be addictions or it might be any you know it, or life is a journey and it's about being able to normalize and say oh this is where I'm at right now and, and not feel that sense of shame around it absolutely because no one's perfect and no. no one's asking you to be perfect no I promise you no one's asking you to be perfect you know no, no one expects that of us but it's just about trying the best you can it's about doing the best you can with what you've got Mm. And especially within a workplace as well, that's all you can do sometimes. Mm. You know, if it comes from that good place, then try. Mm. The least we can do is try. So are there any other um, sort of particular piece of advice or particular messages that you think would be useful as as in your from your position as an expert in this in this area and working with harmless that would be useful for people in organizations and companies to think about um regarding this this topic so i'm sure i've mentioned language so many times <laughs> but <laughs> it really it really does make a difference so being mindful of the language that we're using you know being mindful about you know ourselves like are we are we approachable as a person as an organ as an organization are we actually approachable you know because if we're if we're not then we're not we're not fulfilling what we need to fulfill okay if your employees aren't aren't able to come to you how can we build up trust with our customer base or our clients mm. okay. but that but i think that also comes back doesn't it to some people just tick the box and say yeah we've got a yeah. we've got a mental health first aider or our managers you can talk to any of our managers but actually they haven't got the relationship right bit right which is based yeah. on trust based on psychological safety that ability to be authentic and to know I'll be heard and respected and yeah. you know that's the kind of the, the basics that's the that's for me is the fundamentals of good mental health and well-being it's about the workplace yeah. culture and yeah. what we experience day to day not the who's going to zoom in and rescue us if we're having a bad day <laughs> it can't just be tokenism mm. you know it's not just doing it for doing sake like you actually have to care about people mm you know you care about what's happening to your employees and again that will probably get you a lot of results too mm. <laughs> you know I've I've seen it I again like I've I, I normally job hop this is the first organization that I've been in where I want to stay literally forever I love this place <laughs> because of that culture mm. you know I feel supported not just by my management but by my colleagues as well you know they're mm. not afraid to check in on me and I'm not afraid to check in on them and that's lovely but it's yeah. genuine care, isn't it? And I think that's something yeah. you can't um you can't fake. You know, yeah. people can see right through it. Yeah. Which again goes back to something I talk quite a lot about are the right people in the right roles. So if you've got people yeah. in roles that are about looking after other people and they don't really genuinely care enough about it, yeah. it's not there's no shame attached with that. There's no it's just if that's not their interest or their skill set. So yeah. um yeah exactly okay yeah you know? yeah um and again if what I would also say is that there's also a lot of self-stigma you know there's lots of expectations that we might have on ourselves too so again particularly we know that males are particularly affected by self-harm and they're likely the ones who are going to mask it the most you know recognizing those behaviors I've I mean, I, I know plenty of people who, until I've started speaking about different methods of self-harm, for example, hitting and 
mm. uh, self-hitting and hitting other things. Mm. I've had people who've said to me, you know, I, I didn't realize that what should, actually what I was doing was a form of self-harm, mm. you know, and that's massive. Mm. And to not ignore it, hold mm. space for yourself, you know, make sure that you are getting that support for you as well because you deserve it. You know, whether you're an employee or in a manager role, you know, or the CEO of a company, you know, take the time to look after yourselves, to look after others. Because if you're not, well, what's the point? You know, I want you to think about that oxygen mask analogy. When you're on a plane and that oxygen mask comes down, whose mask do you put on first? Mm. It's got to be yours so you can help other people. Mm. Good, wise words, Yad. Thank you. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm really pleased. I'm I'm very um very appreciative of your um your contribution as well to the resource that's going to accompany this uh this conversation because I think this conversation hopefully for people normalize um talking about self-harm and suicide, take the fear out of it. And yeah. you've given some lovely examples of language that people can use just to f start the conversation or encourage the conversation to continue without having to take on an expert role or try to solve anything, but it's just about creating that space. So um, that's lovely. And I think the the resource that goes with it will be uh, very practical in terms of these are things to think about at an organizational level. You know, if you're thinking about what to do to prevent um, mental health declining or behaviors associated with um people having sort of emotional mental challenges um from sh sort of showing up what can we be doing but also if you're having one-to-one -one conversations or one-to-one -one support what should that look like so lots of um sort of quite small quite achievable examples in in the resource um for people just to prompt the conversation and again it shouldn't be landing on one person's desk saying right sort this out for your organization it's got to be a conversation that there are a number of people coming together and saying right how do we think about this and if you've got people you know if, imagine saying to your organization actually we're going to have a focus on self-harm to make sure we're looking after people well if you've got an interest in this or if you've got lived experience or if you've got just something yeah. you want to say then you want to be part of our working group to make sure we're getting the policy wording right or to make sure the provision is right or whatever it's it's about sharing that responsibility um yeah. i think that makes such a difference to you know the poor soul who otherwise gets it on you know that responsibility sits on their shoulders and it's like it's a really hard gig <laughs> yeah absolutely um and speaking of it is um self-harm awareness day on the first of march yeah yes and so uh, i again I, I not in terms of tokenism it's not that we should only be doing things on on days of significance but, you know, maybe that's a good time to start a, a conversation in your organization. Again, just like you've said, Lisa, you know, can we incorporate people who've got a lived experience? Can we, again, not forcing anyone, but providing an opportunity if anyone wants to talk about it? Mm. You know, can we have those safe conversations? Can we create that safe space? Um, and as part of something that we're doing at Harmless is we run a national conference every year on Self-Harm Awareness Day. Um, if anyone is interested, um, Lisa, I'll send you some more information on that as well. Yes, do. We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. 
yeah brilliant great. thank you thank you so much yeah so that so people can look in the again the show notes for the links to the resource it's called self-harm disorders and phobias it's the suffering we don't see dispelling the myths and shaping helpful solutions um and hopefully from the conversation we've had today people will realize that those helpful solutions really come down to the essence of just being a really good human being which is about relationships and showing we care and not having all the answers which I think just takes a huge pressure off us to have to become an expert in all these different areas of people's behavior it's like actually no just go down it's the same behaviors in all pretty much all the resources that are part of the resilience collective there are some you know there are core things if you get those right it doesn't matter what someone's experiencing you'll be doing the right thing by them yeah yeah I absolutely agree I love that so much yeah yeah thank you so much yeah that's been brilliant thank you Lisa it was really great I really appreciate your time thank you for let me speak on the subject uh don't know if you notice I'm really passionate about it <laughs> oh just a little bit a little bit and and can people um uh, contact you if they want to know I mean certainly we're going to have Carmen's yeah. details in the in the show notes and we'll we'll have your details as well so you're happy for people just to reach out if they want to touch yeah. base please do yeah absolutely um I'll pop my personal email in there as well well my personal work email yeah in there as well so if anyone has any questions wants to get in touch please by all means please do yeah brilliant thank you thank you so much what have you taken from the conversation today please do think about your intention to do something differently and do give the podcast a thumbs up on apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts i'd be incredibly grateful if you could leave a short review too as it helps spread the word far and wide i'd love you to join the club be part of driving real change that improves practice and people's experience at work. You'll be the first to hear about relevant updates and free downloadable resources. Please do reach out to me directly to discuss the topics we've covered on this podcast or perhaps other challenges at work. And if we're not already acquainted on LinkedIn, please do connect. All the links you need are in the show notes. Thanks again and see you a fortnight.